0: Do you know what an urban legend is? An urban legend is a statement, often surprising in its content, that gets passed from person to person as fact, even though it's not true. And often, urban legends are easily falsifiable. Let me give you some examples. Hold on to your hats. Number one, from Texas, where I happen to live. Maybe you've heard this, I've heard it more often, Uh, More than once and my colleague Brent Ward has heard it many times as well. It goes like this There's only one natural lake in Texas. All the rest are man-made I've heard that many times This assertion is regularly made and believed by many, but it's not at all true And it's easily falsifiable the first time that I heard it from a friend who ought to have known better I was immediately skeptical apart from the fact that Texas is huge There's all kinds of lakes in Texas. Maybe that makes the claim a little bit more audacious. All that one has to do to demonstrate its falsity is to consider the oxbow lakes along the major rivers. An oxbow lake is the result of the silting process of the natural meanders of rivers when they flow through low areas. The beginning of a river bend tends to accumulate debris and silt from the current, and these eventually form a barrier, creating a lake behind the barrier both the red river and rio grande have oxbow lakes in texas secondly let me give you a florida urban legend love bugs were created at a lab at the university of florida as a means to reduce the mosquito population have you ever heard that one it's not true this is also false love bugs seem to be native to central and south america According to one source that I consulted, they appeared in East Texas in the 1940s and worked their way east until they spread to Florida in the 1970s. But they are not from a laboratory at the University of Florida. Sorry to burst your bubble. Now, these are two popular urban legends. Let me offer you another one. I quote, Baptists have typically described confessions as voluntary, non-binding, fallible statements of faith, And they have basically opposed creeds since they imply unwarranted finality and ultimate authority in matters of faith and practice. That's from Charles DeWeese in his book, Dictionary of Baptists in America. Listen to Leon Macbeth. He wrote this, early Baptists never elevated their confessions to the status of creeds. That's in the Baptist heritage. Or William Brackney in his historical Dictionary of the Baptists who said, historically, Baptists have understood themselves as non-creedal. By this is meant that the historic creeds of the churches are non-binding on the conscience and thus may not be used for discipline, worship, or definitional purposes. Rather, Baptists affirm liberty of conscience and prefer to interpret the Bible as guided by the Holy Spirit and the church. Now, these, this is the party line reported over and over in many modern Baptist theology and history books. But as we shall see, we must be honest and recognize that there is an element of truth in some of these claims, but they're usually exaggerated and universalized in such a way that the impression is given that Baptists have never used creeds and confessions as defining documents for churches and associations. Statements such as these become urban legends, received as facts, even though they do not reflect the complete testimony of Baptist history. So what I would like to do this evening is very simple. First, I want to present to you some strong statements by Baptists in favor of creedalism and confessionalism. Secondly, I want to examine three contrary examples from our history, seeking to understand them in their contexts. and I'll conclude with a lengthy quotation from one of the most important men in our history. So let's begin, I want to proceed chronologically Let me begin with the 17th century. When the particular Baptists first appeared around 1640, political and religious leaders looked on them with scorn and derision. Members of Parliament and the Westminster Assembly demanded that they make a clear and honest display of their faith and practice. And this they did through the publication of a confession of faith in 1644. In the epistle that is affixed to the front of that document, they say this, and this is a quotation. We have, therefore, for the clearing of the truth we profess, that it may be at liberty, though we be in bonds, briefly published a confession of our faith as desiring all that fear God seriously to consider whether, if they compare what we here say, and confess in the presence of the Lord Jesus and his saints, if men have not with their tongues in pulpit and pens in print both spoken and written things that are contrary to truth. But we know our God in his own time will clear our cause and lift up his son to make him the chief cornerstone, though he has been or now should be rejected of the master builders. And by that, they mean the members of the Westminster Assembly. And because it may, be some one, um, it may be conceived that what is here published may be the judgment of some one particular congregation, more refined than the rest, we do therefore here subscribe it, some of each body in the name and by the appointment of seven congregations, who though we be distinct in respect of our particular bodies, for convenience sake, being as many as can well meet together in one place, yet are all one in communion, holding Jesus Christ to be our head and Lord, under whose government we desire alone to walk in following the Lamb wheresoever he goes. Now this language... It's important to notice in this earliest confession of faith the baptist employ strong language to assert that this profession that's what they tended to call it expresses their true faith. Do you hear what they said? We here say and confess in the presence of the Lord Jesus and his saints. These are words that are reminiscent of the three charges that the apostle Paul makes in the pastoral epistles. The confession was the accepted testimony of seven churches subscribed by 15 church members as representatives of these assemblies. The intention is clear. These words, confessed before the Lord Jesus Christ, are a binding expression of their, document, of their doctrine. In 1646, this confession was revised in response to strictures placed upon it by several pedo and because of continuing opposition, its epistle is even more explicit in its intent. Let me read this one to you. To free ourselves and the truth we profess from such unjust aspersions that it may be at liberty, though we be in bonds, we have published a brief confession of our faith, which we conceive most void of contention in these sad and troublesome times. The thoughts of our hearts, as in the presence of God, we here declare that it may appear to the consciences of them that fear God what wrong we suffer from some who have ability to cast mists and dark clouds which overshadow the glory of the truth and them them that profess it, Jude 14 and 15. Unless this should be thought to be the judgment of some particular persons, this is done by the consent and appointment of seven congregations or churches in London with the names of some of each of them subscribed in the behalf of the whole. And although we be distinct in our meetings for convenience, yet we are one in faith, fellowship and communion holding Jesus Christ for our head and lawgiver, under whose rule and government we desire to walk, and to follow the Lamb wheresoever he goes, that when our Lord and King shall call us to account, we may be found ready and worthy to be received into our master's joy. And Once again, while the sentiment is the same, the language is more direct. The revised confession declares that it is the thoughts of our hearts as in the presence of God these are not ideas that are non-binding on the conscience rather they expressly indicate that the doctrines contained are their thoughts in the presence of god they claim god as witness to the verity of these expressions of faith among the churches they are one in faith and prepared to give an account to christ their king on the last day now i have a lot to cover so i'm going to move forward very quickly to the next general confession that was issued by these particular Baptists three decades later. And there we read strong words. Now, this is from the epistle at the beginning of the 1689 confession, though it was actually first published in 1677. Acknowledging their dependence upon the Presbyterian Westminster Confession of Faith of 1646 and the congregational Savoy Declaration of 1658, the Baptists wrote this we did in like manner conclude it best to follow their example, that is the example of the Congregationalists, in making use of the very same words with them both in these articles, which are very many, wherein our faith and doctrine is the same with theirs. And this we did the more abundantly to manifest our consent with both in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, as also with many others whose Orthodox confessions have been published to the world, on behalf of the Protestants in diverse nations and cities, and also to convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words, but to readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which hath been in consent with the holy scriptures used by others before us. And then listen to this. Hereby declaring before God, angels, and men our hearty agreement with them in that wholesome Protestant doctrine which with so clear evidence of scriptures they have asserted. These words are plain, and they are strong. Like their predecessors, they invoke the presence of the heavenly courtroom to witness the seriousness of their commitment to the doctrines of their confession of faith. They believe that the truths expressed in the confession have been suitably based in Scripture, and for that reason, they publicly and wholeheartedly adopt and subscribe to the doctrines contained in it. Contrary to to Mr. DeWeese, the 108 churches that subscribed the confession in 1689 considered it to be a binding expression of their faith. They were convinced that it was true to the word of God. Now this is, of course, the only good reason to adopt a confession of faith. When it agrees with scripture, when it clearly brings together truths expressed in God's word, it is right, even necessary to adopt it, becoming the standard which defines the parameters of belief for the church or for an association. Because it is true to scripture, it is received. Writing 75 years later, John Gill expressed this point very well. He said this, medicine, jurisprudence or law, and every art and science are reduced to a system or body, which is no other than an assemblage or composition of the several doctrines or parts of a science. And why should divinity, the most noble science, be without a system? Evangelical truths are spread and scattered about in the sacred scriptures, and to gather them together and dispose of them in a regular, regular orderly method surely cannot be disagreeable, but must be useful for the more clear and perspicuous understanding them, for the better retaining them in memory, and to show the connection, harmony, and agreement of them. Upon the whole, it seems, no ways incongruous with the sacred writings, but perfectly agreeable to them that articles and heads of faith or a summary of gospel truths may be collected from them to declare explicitly our belief of them, to strengthen the faith of others in them, to show our agreement in them with other Christians in the principal parts of them, and to distinguish ourselves from those who oppose the faith once delivered to the saints. Now, this is exactly what the early Baptists were doing. They were collating various texts of Scripture in order to express the most important matters of Christian doctrine. They recognized that when Jude wrote of the faith once for all delivered to the saints, or when Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 6, that they had been delivered to a form of doctrine, or to Timothy when he said, hold fast the pattern of sound words you've heard from me, they knew that these apostles meant more than simply memorizing scripture texts. These and many more speak of the system of doctrine taught in God's word. And this is what a confession seeks to do, and our fathers understood this fact. In 1680, A pastor named Hercules Collins from the Baptist Church meeting at Old Gravel Lane in London published a baptized version of the Heidelberg Catechism. No, it wasn't wet. That's just my figure of speech. It incorporates all the wonderful experiential doctrines of that old German document, but it removes the pedo-baptist elements, replacing them with statements about Baptist covenant theology and believers' baptism. And this catechism incorporates the Apostles' Creed and concludes with the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. Now listen to what Hercules Collins says in the preface of his 1680 publication. He says, I have proposed three creeds to your consideration, which ought thoroughly to be believed and embraced by all those that would be accounted Christians. Namely, the Nicene Creed, Athanasius, his creed, and the creed commonly called the Apostles, the last of which contains the sum of the gospel, which is industriously opened and explained in the catechism. And I beseech you, do not slight it because of its form, nor antiquity, nor because, it, nor because supposed to be composed by men, neither because some that hold it maintain some errors, or whose conversation may not be correspondent to such fundamental principles of salvation. But take this perpetual rule, that whatever is good in any, owned by any, whatever error or vice it may be mixed with all, the good must not be rejected for the error or vice sake, but owned, commended, and accepted. Much of the Heidelberg Catechism, and thus Collins Orthodox Catechism, is itself an exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Now, did you hear his words? He said, these creeds, Nicene, Apostles, and Athanasian, ought to thoroughly be believed and embraced by all those that would be accounted Christians. It's a pretty strong witness against our urban legend, is it not? In 1692, looking back on the first London Confession and the intentions of those who published it, William Kiffin and three other London pastors expressed their views about the Confession. So strongly were these men committed to the words contained in their Confession, that they considered anyone, I quote, the grossest sort of hypocrite in professing the contrary by their profession of faith and yet believing and practicing quite otherwise to what they solemnly professed as their faith in that matter. Wow, the grossest sort of hypocrite. Adopting a confession was a serious matter. For these men, it was a religious act. It was done in the presence of God. Let's cross the Atlantic Ocean. In the American colonies, it is really through the Philadelphia Association that the Second London Confession gained its greatest influence. While the records of the association do not list the date at which they adopted the confession, they refer to it early on. The records state this. In the year 1724, a query concerning the Fourth Commandment, whether changed, altered, or diminished, we refer to the confession of faith set forth by the elders and brethren met in London, 1689, and owned by us, chapter 22, section 7 and 8. A few years later, in 1727, they responded to a question about marriage in the same way. The records tersely state, answered by referring to our confession of faith, chapter 26 in our last edition. Now, these statements make it evident that the association churches had adopted the confession as their own. By 1742, it was decided to reprint the confession, a motion that was repeated and recorded in the records in 1765. Now, it's true that under the influence of Benjamin Keach's theology, two articles were added, namely one on singing hymns in worship and the other treating the laying on of hands as a third ordinance in the church but the rest of the confession was left intact, and it was the doctrinal standard for the churches in the association. There were numerous adoptions of the same document. As the first and oldest association in America, the influence of the Philadelphia churches was powerful. The Ketokton, Virginia Association adopted the confession in 1766, as did the Charleston, South Carolina, and Warren, Rhode Island associations in 1767. Through these associations and others and the constituent churches, the doctrine and practices of the Second London Confession molded much of early thinking among Baptists in America. Now, for the sake of time, let me move forward to the 19th century. On November the 7th, 1836, the Christian Index, which was a newspaper published in Georgia, it began to run a series of articles expounding the 32 chapters of the 1689 Confession. The first piece, apparently penned by Jesse Mercer, was titled, Our Old Confession of Faith. And it said this, the Baptists, as a denomination have always regarded the Bible as being amply sufficient for the purposes of faith and practice. But knowing that many persons holding wild and visionary notions about religious subjects, our brethren have felt it important to get up certain beliefs or compendions of their faith, so that their adoption of the Bible in general terms might not seem to be a sort of shield for heterodox opinions, and that there might be a oneness of doctrine and practice amongst themselves. These summaries of faith have generally been taken from the Old Confession, published in England, first in 1643, and subsequently in 1689, adopted in America by the Philadelphia Association of Baptists in 1742, and by the Charleston Association in 1767. He goes on. Now it has been a question in our mind why we regular Baptists throughout this whole country might not adopt this confession, and by so doing have the articles of faith in every association exactly alike. For certainly this venerable little book does contain the doctrines systematically arranged which are held by the old-fashioned Calvinistic Baptists the world over. Why may we not then have a cheap edition of this most excellent compendium, numerous enough to furnish every family in America with a copy? Isn't that great? What wonderful words. And it's an important testimony, because it demonstrates that among the Georgia Baptists, there were some who desired confessional Baptist theology to extend throughout the entire nation. Mercer understood that a confession was necessary for stating that one believes in the Bible without defining what that means and what it teaches, opens the door to heterodoxy and perhaps even heresy. And I want you to remember this fact when we examine our final anti-confessional incident. One more witness. Writing in 1881, William Cathcart, the editor of the Baptist Encyclopedia, said this, In England and America, churches, individuals, and associations with clear minds, with hearts full of love for the truth, have held with veneration the Articles of 1689. Now, these are only a selection of statements made by various Baptists, spanning several centuries on both sides of the Atlantic, employing strong language expressing their commitment to historical creeds and sound confessions of faith. Despite the loud voices of anti-confessionalists, there is ample evidence for the importance of these documents in our Baptist history. We haven't even mentioned the fact that several general Baptist documents similarly express commitments to creeds and confessions. Time simply doesn't permit us to look at them. Now, part two. Earlier I said we must be honest and recognize that there is an element of truth in some of the claims of the anti-confessionalists. Now is the time to examine them. And so I have three examples from three centuries that I want to consider with you. These are the typical things that are cited by these authors if they bother to cite anything. The first is from Colonial Virginia. It's generally recognized that two streams of Baptists were present in the colony in the 18th century. Around 1743, a group of Baptists in fellowship with the Philadelphia Association emigrated from Maryland to the northwestern part of Virginia. These are called Regular Baptists, regular being a term from the Latin regula, and it simply means rule. They held the Philadelphia Confession, adhering to the rule as developed by the Philadelphia churches. About a decade later, separate Baptists from New England appeared in the colony of Virginia. And these were considered to be new lights, the fruit of the Great Awakening. They were perhaps more enthusiastic than the regulars, more open, as they said, to movements of the Spirit as they perceived them, but also they were tinged with legalism. Robert Semple, the early historian of Baptists in Virginia, notes that they kept their distance from the regular Baptists because they were, I quote, more particular in small matters such as dress. The separates sought for and practiced a separation from worldly practices as they understood them. They thought that they saw these things in the regulars. In 1767, Messengers from both groups met at Spotsylvania, Virginia. Robert Semple states that the Separates, quote, expressed fears that the confession of faith adopted by the regulars might in time bind them too much as there were some objectionable parts. It seems that the Separates were more concerned with outward appearance than theological commitment. In 1783, John Williams proposed to the Separate Baptist General Association that a confession of faith should be adopted as a standard of principles. The messengers agreed to adopt the Philadelphia Confession but with this statement. To prevent its usurping a tyrannical power over the consciences of any, we do not mean that every person is to be bound to the strict observance of everything therein contained, nor do we mean to make it in any respect superior or equal to the scriptures in matters of faith or practice. Although we think it the best human composition of the kind now extant, yet it shall be liable to alterations whenever the general committee, in behalf of the association, shall see fit. Four years later, an attempt was successfully made to bring the separates and the regulars together. Under the leadership of Reuben Ford and John Leland, a debate over the propriety of adopting a confession of faith was held. Several of the separates argued that while many of their men in churches held to the confession, there were others, I quote, who leaned towards the Arminian system, but whose character and piety testified to their genuine faith. These separates were unwilling to adopt the confession if it meant that these men in churches were to be excluded. Semple says this, After considerable debate as to the propriety of having any confession of faith at all, It was decided to adopt a statement closely resembling that of 1783 with this addition. Yet that it holds forth the essential truths of the gospel and the doctrine of salvation by Christ and free unmerited grace alone ought to be believed by every Christian and maintained by every minister of the gospel. So this was adopted and the union of churches was accomplished. Now, here's a case where the Philadelphia Confession was accepted as a reference point without becoming the standard for the United Churches. We ought to ask, what were the causes of this? Why is it that it was held at a distance? Well, I think that two factors, at least, can be noted. Firstly, based on what we've read, in the minds of some among the separates, personal relationships and practices seem to have been more important than commitments to specific theological assertions. They recognized the level of piety as they understood it, among the men who leaned away from Calvinism toward Arminianism and desired to include these men and their churches in the fellowship. Now, one can appreciate this desire even while disagreeing with the action. I do wonder, however, if piety, as they defined it, was as much focused on small matters such as dress, in Semple's quote, as it is on heartfelt religion." Second, a second factor, it's important to consider the political circumstances faced by these churches. Virginia was a colony dominated by the Church of England, the legally established church in the colony. For decades, political leaders, bishops, and ministers of the Church of England had actively persecuted the Baptists. Many were jailed or forced to pay fines for their refusal to attend the Church of England parishes but also for denying the contents of the Church of England's confession of faith, known as the 39 Articles. John Leland was opposed to any religious tests in the public sphere and carried this opposition over to the churches. He called the political system evil, saying that the structure as it existed in, I quote, this is from his writings, the British form of government wherein the state establishment of the Church of England No man is eligible to any office, civil or military, without he subscribes to the 39 articles and book of common prayer. And no nonconformist is allowed the liberty of his conscience without he subscribes to all 39 articles, but about four. And when that is done, his purse strings are drawn by others to pay preachers in whom he puts no confidence and whom he never hears. You see, the political philosophy of the day moved him to oppose the adoption of a confession of faith among the churches. From his perspective, to do so was too close to the oppression that he observed by the Church of England officers in the colony of Virginia. You know what this is? It's a radical form of individualism, more informed by the principles of the enlightenment than scripture and Christian practice. Well, it's true that Leland and Ford led the Virginia Baptists to hold the Philadelphia Confession at a distance, They did so for faulty reasons. Our second example comes from New England. Francis Wayland, who was an important Baptist leader from the North, in 1856 published a book titled Notes on the Principles and Practices of Baptist Churches. Its very first chapter is titled Baptists have no authoritative confessions of faith. The absence of such confession, a cause of union, rather than division." Now, Wayland uses strong language, stating that it is impossible for Baptists to have what he calls an established confession. And his words are really important, but they're easily misunderstood. Because by established, he means imposed by a higher authority, such as a pope, or a congregation of cardinals, or an archbishop, or a bench of bishops, or a general assembly, or a synod. Those are his words. Wayland acknowledges that churches have confessions of faith and even allows, in some way, for associations to adopt them. He says this, though. Listen carefully. Every church, therefore, when it expresses its own belief, expresses the belief of no other than its own members. If several churches understand the scriptures in the same way and all unite in the same confession, then this expresses the opinions and belief of those who profess it. It, however, expresses their belief because all of them from the study of the scriptures understand them in the same manner and not because any tribunal has imposed such interpretations upon them. Now, do you hear what his objection is? It's any authority higher than the church imposing a confession upon a church or an individual. You see, at first glance, Wayland's anti-confessional words would seem to indicate complete opposition to the use of creeds and confessions but this misrepresents his views. For him, these documents cannot be required by a higher entity beyond the local congregation. Now, there is more to his argument when he seeks to assert that the absence of an established confession provides more unity than created by adopting one. which seems a very strange idea. His proposal is based upon an application of democratic ideals founded on the virtue of freedom. Listen again to what he wrote. If the Bible be a book designed for every individual man and intended to be understood by every man, then the greatest amount of unity attainable among men of diversified character will be produced by allowing everyone to look at it and study it for himself. We encourage Bible reading, don't we, and study. He goes on. Here is an inspired record allowed to be pure truth. The nearer the opinions of men approach to its teachings, the nearer they approach to each other. Here is a solid and definite basis of unity. It is such a unity as is adapted to the nature of man as an intelligent and accountable being. Now, do you hear what he says? In this argument, Wayland relies on the ability of each person to interpret the Bible individually with the expectation that this will bring about unity. But this is a naive and idealistic approach to understanding theology. It neglects important facts the effects of the fall on the human mind, the level of comprehension in each individual reader, the importance of the ministry of pastors and teachers, and so on. Maybe it's a misunderstanding of the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture. But in any case, Whalen's views more reflect an exaltation of the individual and his mind, and so in some ways, his stance is even more radical than Leland's position. In the third place, let's consider an important incident from the 20th century. After the separation of Baptist North and South in 1845, the two groups followed different paths. The Southerners organized according to the convention or association plan, consolidating various ministries under one umbrella organization. The Northerners had long been opposed to this method, in fact, it was one of the background issues that separated North and South, They preferred the society method, which promoted separate, single-purpose entities, such as the American Baptist Foreign Mission Society, the American Baptist Home Mission Society, the American Baptist Publication Society, etc. And for 60 years, they followed this pattern and didn't organize into the Northern Baptist Convention until 1907. No confession of faith was adopted at this time. There was no doctrinal standard beyond the advocacy of believer's baptism, and a general acknowledgement of historic Christian doctrines. In 1911, the free will Baptist churches merged into the Northern Baptist Convention. But this gentleman's agreement was insufficient as conservatives became increasingly aware of the acceptance and promotion of what they called modernist theology in the denominational schools. Colgate, University of Chicago Divinity School, Crozer Seminary, these were all Baptist schools. Likewise, known modernists were allowed to participate in the national convention meetings. In 1919, Harry Emerson Fosdick was the keynote speaker at the Northern Convention. The conservatives in the convention were deeply disturbed, controversy was brewing, there was no theological means to examine individuals and promote orthodoxy. And so at the 1922 convention, William B. Riley from Minneapolis stood to move that the convention adopt the New Hampshire Confession of 1833 as its doctrinal standard. There was a floor debate. And in the ensuing debate, a man named Cornelius Wolfkin, who was pastor of the progressive Park Avenue Baptist Church in New York City, stood to propose an alternative motion. This was his motion. That the Northern Baptist Convention affirm that the New Testament is an all-sufficient ground for Baptist faith and practice and they need no other statement. After a lengthy and sometimes heated debate, Wolfkin's motion was adopted. It was the New Hampshire Confession versus the New Testament. And the New Testament won, or better, the New Testament lost in that decision. In this case, the appeal to the New Testament sounded spiritual but it was nothing more than a nefarious ploy to allow unbelief to triumph in the churches. Who could argue against the New Testament? But the matter was really over the interpretation of the New Testament. Because theological liberals often affirm their love for and commitment to the New Testament and assert that creeds and confessions are human documents imposed on Scripture. By rejecting their adoption and usefulness, the door is opened for all sorts of heterodox and heretical doctrines. The history of the church is full of examples of this tactic, and the result is never positive. In fact, if you know anything about what's now called the American Baptist Church's USA, you can see what happened as a result of this decision. Jesse Mer- Mercer understood this in 1833 when he wrote in the Christian Index, the subsequent history of the Northern Baptist Convention exemplifies the terrible effects of this action. I said earlier that there's a grain of truth in the urban legend promoted by some Baptist authors about Baptists and confessions. Here's the grain of truth. Some Baptists have refused to adopt creeds and confessions. The reasons, however, in the cases we have considered more reflect the emerging American cultural milieu or the dishonest plots of unbelieving theologians than they do careful and articulate thought. When examined one by one, these illustrations lose their power. To the contrary, there are many examples of Baptists adopting and subscribing creeds and confessions. Please remember this. There are many natural lakes in Texas. Love bugs hail from Central and South America, and confessionalism has a long and noble history among Baptists. In the face of the drift of our own day and age, now is the time to return to confessionalism among Baptists. I want to conclude with a lengthy quotation from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. In a sermon that was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in 1871, while expounding Song of Solomon 6.4, which says this, thou art beautiful, O my love, Terza, comely as Jerusalem, terrible as an army with banners, he proclaimed this. Now, I, I thought a long time about reducing this To make it briefer but i just couldn't cut out anything that he said it all fits together so bear with me as i read this long quotation if i could put on a spurgonic voice i would do so right now he said this on this occasion let us note first of all why it is that the church of god is said to be an army with banners that she is an army is true enough for the church is one but many and consists of men who march in order under a common leader with one design in view, and that design, a conflict and a victory. She is the church militant here below, and both in suffering and in service, she is made to prove that she is in an enemy's country. She is contending for the truth against error, for the light against darkness, till the day break and the shadows flee away. She must maintain her sentinels and kindle her watchfires, for all around her there is cause to guard against the enemy and to descend the royal treasure of gospel truths against its deadly foes. But why an army with banner? Is not this, first of all, for distinction? How shall we know to which king an army belongs unless we can see the royal standard? In times of war, the nationality of troops is often declared by their distinguishing regimentals. He's about to tell us some things about 19th century warfare. The gray coats of the Russians were well-known in the Crimea. The white livery of the Austrians was a constant eyesore in the bygone days to the natives of Lombardy. No one mistook the black Brunswickers for French guards or our own hussars for Garibaldians. Quite as effectively, armies have been distinguished by the banners which they carried. As the old knights of old were recognized by their plume and helmet and escutcheon, so an army is known by its standard and national colors. The tricolor of the French readily marked their troops as they fled before the terrible black and white of the German army? The Church of Christ displays its banners for distinction's sake. It desires not to be associated with other armies or to be mistaken for them, for it is not of this world, and its weapons and its warfare are far other than those of the nations. God forbid that followers of Jesus should be mistaken for political partisans or ambitious adventurers. The Church unfolds her eng- unfurls her ensign to the breeze that all may know who she is and whom she serves. This is of the utmost importance at the present when crafty men are endeavoring to palm off their inventions. Every Christian church should know what it believes and publicly avow what it maintains. It is our duty to make a clear and distinct declaration of our principles that our members may know to what intent they have come together and that the world also may know what we mean. Far be it from us to join with the broad church cry and furl the banners upon which our distinctive colors are displaced. We hear on all sides great outcries against creeds. Are these clamors justifiable? It seems to me that when properly analyzed, most of the protests are not against creeds but against truth. For every man who believes anything must have a creed, whether he write it down and print it or no. Or if there be a man who believes nothing or anything or everything in turns, he is not a fit man to be set up as a model attacks are often made against creeds because they are a short handy form by which the christian mind gives expression to its belief and those who hate creeds do so because they find them to be weapons as inconvenient as bayonets in the hands of british soldiers have been to our enemies they are weapons so destructive to neology that it protests against them for this reason let us be slow to part with them Let us lay hold of God's truth with iron grip and never let it go. After all, there is a Protestantism still worth contending for, there is a Calvinism still worth proclaiming, and a gospel worth dying for. There is a Christianity distinctive and distinguished from ritualism, rationalism, and legalism, and let us make it known that we believe in it. Up with your banners, soldiers of the cross." This is not the time to be frightened by the cries against conscientious convictions which are nowadays nicknamed sectarianism and bigotry. Believe in your hearts what you profess to believe. Proclaim openly and zealously what you know to be the truth. Be not ashamed to say such and such things are true and let man draw the inference that the opposite is false. Whatever the doctrines of the gospel may be to the rest of mankind, let them be your glory and boast. Display your banners. And let those banners be such as the church of old carried. Unfurl the old primitive standard, the old victorious standard of the cross of Christ. In very deed and truth, in this sign conquer. The atonement is the conquering truth. Let others believe as they may or deny as they will. For you, the truth as it is in Jesus, is the one thing that has won your heart and made you a soldier of the cross. Amen.